Welcome to this week's edition of Island Recast. For more information on Grand Memorial Presbyterian Church or Pastor David, please go to gmpc.org. When I was in the Navy stationed in, uh, uh, in Hawaii, somebody said to me, Ooh, ooh, uh, you, you have to read James Michener's book, Hawaii. I went, oh, okay. So, you know, I got a copy of it. Uh, how many of you have read uh, James Michener's Hawaii? Uh, all right, we've got a couple of handfuls. God bless you. God, I mean, I got that book. Yeah, I mean, it's, I couldn't get past the first 150 pages. Uh, I, you know, you open the, you start reading it, and it's out in the middle of nowhere, and it's water, and there are waves. And, uh, you know, you, you, you read about that for about 10, 15 pages, and then finally a little bit of land uh, pokes up in the middle of nowhere, out in the ocean. I don't think you get the first grain of sand for the beach until about page 120. I just couldn't do it. I, so I, I set it aside. Uh, so you made it through. God bless you. And, and the, so when somebody recommended to me, they said, oh, oh, uh, I, I, the, the James Michener book that you need to read is The Source. And I went, yeah, right. <laughs> Anybody read The Source? Somebody? Nobody here has read The Source. Wow. Uh, um, uh, it's, it gets started before page 200. Um, uh, this was really a good book, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, it is, uh, and I, I learned a lot about, about Israel, and uh, the, the basic premise of the book is, uh, is a tell uh, that they are excavating. Now, a, a tell is, a, is an ancient city that has been built upon and built upon and built upon, and then finally it's just overgrown with dirt. And they're all over Israel, these, these uh, archaeological sites, some of which have not even been touched. But, uh, but some of them have been excavated. Now, you would think uh, that, whoa, let's find out what's here. You start at the top, and you start brushing away dirt until you find yourself at the bottom. Uh, but that's not how they do it, because they recognize that future uh, technology in archaeology is going to be better suited to really take care of what they find than what we can do today. And so that's been the history all the way through. And so what they do is they come to a tell and they take a chunk out, like if you were to cut a piece of cake or a piece of pie. You start at the top, you go down, and you pull this slice out. And then you begin to dissect it layer by layer to discover what you can about the various civilizations uh, that have existed on that site throughout history. And that's what this book is about. They, they, it's a, and, and they, they, they go into this uh, tell, they take a slice out, and then he writes a chapter about each civilization. And it's absolutely fascinating. I learned more about Israel and, and grew to have a, a greater respect for, for Judaism than I had ever had before. In fact, I started seeking out rabbis that I could talk to uh, because I was so impressed with how Michener put this, uh, put this book together. The Source, uh, a great book to read. And of course, when we think about The Source, what do we think about? What is The Source? Well, a source is a primary reference. It's a point of, uh, of origin. It is 
something from which something else comes from. I like that definition. A source is something from which something comes from. When I think about the source, I think about the source. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So for us, the ultimate source is Jesus. The ultimate source is God Almighty, God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So we are working our way through the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. Uh, so if you would open your Bibles to the sixth chapter, we have spent the entire month of June in this sixth chapter. So for those of you who are here today, you get to, you get to partake in the thrilling conclusion of this chapter. And it's a pivotal chapter in John's gospel. John's gospel, John wants us to truly understand who Jesus is as the source. You'll remember when Moses was up on the mountain and in the presence of the burning bush, and God speaks to him and says, Moses, I want you to go to Israel, or I want you to go to Egypt, and I want you to free my people, lead them out of slavery. And, and Moses says, God, they're going to ask me who you are, what your name is, what am I going to tell them? And, uh, and God speaks to Moses and he says, I am. I am who I am. You tell them that I am sent you. And that's the, that's the name of God. And in, in, in John's gospel, John makes it a point to communicate to us who Jesus is as the great I am. Seven times. In John's gospel, Jesus explicitly identifies himself as I am, the great I am. And the first time that he does this is in the sixth chapter as he declares himself to be the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Now, this is a pivoting moment uh, because this is where the rubber meets the road for the disciples. And the, the teaching that, uh, that, that Jesus delivers in this sixth chapter is, is challenging at, 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 its, at its face value. It comes, on, it comes in the context of Jesus feeding the 5,000, 5,000 men plus the women and children. So there was uh, uh, all this food. And everybody ate to their fill. And, and, and we read that they wanted to force Jesus to be their king. And so realizing that the disciples were probably out there egging the crowds on, he, he dismisses them, then he dismisses the crowd, and then later on he joins his disciples, and they, they, the crowds, they, they chase after him, and they find him. And, and Jesus just kind of shakes his head. He says, you, you're, you're here because, because you ate, and your stomachs were full. You're looking for your next meal. You, you, didn't, you witnessed miracles and you didn't, you didn't, you're not here because of the miracles that you saw. And, 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 and earlier on, Jesus, in the, in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus gives testimony of the testimonies, the witnesses to his claims. He says, look at the baptizer who, when I first started, said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. 
Or, or how about when I was baptized and I came out of the water, the voice from heaven that came down, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Or, or the miracles that they are witnessing. Or even the words of scripture. He says, if you would believe Moses, you would believe me because Moses writes about me. You guys are here not because of any witness, not because of any miracle that you saw. You're simply here because you ate and you're looking for your next meal. I need you to think beyond your stomachs because we do not eat by bread. We do not survive by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. There is spiritual nourishment that Jesus wants us to grab onto. He wants these people to grab onto. But they need to make a decision. They need to understand. They need to assent to the truth that he is who he claims to be as the great I am. And they're struggling with that a little bit. As he talks about his body, as real food and his blood as real drink. And as we finish up this sixth chapter, they're struggling with that. They're arguing amongst themselves. Uh, we read that in verse 52. They're, they, they're arguing sharply among themselves. How can this man give us flesh to eat? Verse 53, Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them, just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your forefathers, they ate manna and died. But he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? What if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit, and they are life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and which who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Do you not want to leave too? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, 
To whom shall we go? You have the eternal, you have the words of eternal life. We believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is the devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, was later to betray him. So the question, I guess, is really, why did they leave? Why did the majority of the disciples, upon hearing this hard teaching, decide that it was no longer in their best interest to follow Jesus? And for that matter, why did the twelve stay? As I suggested earlier, I see this chapter as a pivotal moment in the gospel. Last week, we talked about that eternal question that exists in every car traveling with children in the back. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And there's a sense in which Jesus is finally asking his disciples, are we there yet, people? Do you assent to the truth? Do you believe what I'm telling you? What you are seeing in the miracles? The testimony of others? Do you believe that I am who I claim to be? The great I am, the bread of life? Are we there yet? It's time to make a decision. And as we travel on this road of faith, there will come a time in each of our lives where we will have to make that decision, where we will arrive at the point where we recognize that Jesus is who he claims to be, the great I am, the word who was in the beginning, who was with God, who was God, through whom all things were created, who became flesh and dwelt among us. But that's a big commitment. And there's some anxiety on the part of those who are hearing Jesus. As he's talking about this, the eat my, eat my flesh, drink my blood, what are you talking about? Are you, are you advocating cannibalism? Well, it reminds me of another conversation that Jesus had with somebody earlier on in the Gospel of John uh, when a man by the name of Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night and says, Jesus, we know, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you are from God. Nobody can do the things that you do were God not with them. Jesus cuts right through everything, goes right to the heart of the matter and says to Nicodemus, you want to see the kingdom of heaven? You must be born again. And just like these people who can't go beyond the literal interpretation, Nicodemus says, what are you talking about? I'm a grown man. I don't think my mother would go for that. What you're asking doesn't make any sense to me. Jesus 
pushed Nicodemus like he's pushing these people as well. In fact, he does for them what he doesn't do for Nicodemus. He flat out tells them. He says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. This is more, you got to start thinking beyond your stomachs because we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I'm going to push you on this a little bit. Because at some point you have to make a decision. At some point you have to make a choice. And they are wrestling. In fact, many of his disciples, upon hearing this, uh, they were grumbling. They were grumbling. And, and Jesus asks them, I love this, does this offend you? Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, uh, let, let me rephrase this. The last thing that I would want is for you to feel uncomfortable. I, I don't want to bruise your delicate sensibilities. Let me see if I can come up with a way of explaining this that's a little more palatable. No. Does this offend you? Welcome to the club, people. You need to understand that they hate me, and they're going to hate me, and if you become my disciples, they're going to hate you as well. This is not an easy road. It's a hard road. And they're grumbling. Why are they grumbling? I think they're grumbling for a number of reasons, not the least of which, Jesus is not meeting their expectations. I mean, they see in Jesus an opportunity to bring down a police state. You know, and I never thought about using those words until yesterday. Somebody brought it up in the Bible study that first century Israel was a police state. There was no due process. There was no law and order. There was only Caesar. And Caesar did whatever Caesar wanted to do, and you didn't like it? Well, tough luck, because it's good to be king, and you're not king. And they saw Jesus as somebody who was willing to stand up to the authorities. They saw Jesus as somebody who was willing uh, uh, to speak truth in a way that they had, with authority, that they had never heard before. They saw in Jesus someone that could feed an entire army with a handful of, a handful of bread and a couple of fish. They had an expectation that Jesus would be their earthly king. They tried to force him to be king, and he says, No, I will not be the king that you want, because I need to be the king that you need. I want to be the king that you need. So he doesn't meet their expectations, and so they grumble. They get angry. You stop and think about it for a minute. Anger is a secondary emotion. Anger is a secondary emotion, which means when you find yourself angry. Anybody here ever been angry? I have. When you find yourself angry, it's important to realize that it's something outside of you. 95% of the time, it's something outside of you that is causing you to be angry. It's a secondary emotion. And I would say that 95% of the time, the cause of our anger can be identified by one of four things. And one of them is unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. Now, that's tricky because not all of our expectations are realistic and not all of our expectations are, are, are communicated. So if you have an unspoken, unrealistic expectation, we'll prepare to get hurt. 
because that expectation is never going to get met. But they had expectations of Jesus and he wasn't meeting him. They were angry. Another source of anger is blocked goals. And Jesus was blocking their goals. These were good goals. These were not inappropriate goals. A goal to live uh, in, in, in a country that is self-directed, that, that we're no longer living in a police state, where they're taxing us. I mean, they were, the, the taxation rate in the first century was horrific. I mean, sometimes more than 50%. Is, it a, is that a, an unrealistic goal to eliminate that and establish a government of your own choosing? And Jesus was blocking that goal. He was not meeting their expectations, and he was blocking their goals. Two of the four sources of anger. The third one is loss of control. Jesus wasn't answering all of their questions. And there are people who say, you know, I have too many questions. I, I, I've got too many questions. There's no way that I could believe in a, in, in a God of creation with the questions that I have. Really? So you have to have all of your questions answered before you'll make that assent, before you'll make that commitment. Fascinating. Who's in control here, you or God? Well, if I have an expectation that all of my questions are going to be answered before I move on, then I'm maintaining control of my own life. And, and by golly, I, I understand that. I'm, I want to control my life. And, and if you're asking me to do something that puts my life in jeopardy, well, then I have every right to question you. And if you don't answer my questions to my level of expectation, well, then forget it. I'm not even going to go there. Hold on to that thought. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Because the fourth source of anger in our lives is fear. And when we are afraid, we get angry. Because when we are afraid, we recognize that we really are out of control. And when we are afraid, we recognize that our expectations to be safe are not being met and that goals are being blocked. And I would submit to you that the people who were hearing Jesus were experiencing all four of those. Here's the key. We're most out of control when we think we are in control. We are never in control. Life is fragile and unpredictable and we know that and sometimes it makes us angry and so for the people that were listening they're saying you know what i can't go there you're asking me you're asking me to believe that you are the great i am that you are the source of 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 everything and yet i find myself living in circumstances that don't coincide with what you're telling me you're asking me to make a commitment, and it is a commitment, and, and I'm afraid to make that commitment. You know why I'm afraid to make that commitment? I'm afraid to make that commitment because I'm afraid that I'm going to get hurt. I'm afraid that I'm going to be disappointed. I'm afraid that I'm going to be betrayed because you know what? That's my experience in life. I have been, anybody here been hurt by another person? Yeah. Have you ever hurt another person? Well, I don't want to go there. Uh, uh, we've been hurt. 
We've been disappointed. We've been betrayed. And so we're, you know, not quite willing to jump into this. And yet people do it all the time with the covenant of marriage. You know, when I, when I marry people, I, I, I do premarital counseling and I tell them, I said, here's what I want. Here's my hope. My hope is that before you uh, walk down that aisle, that your eyes are wide open. And then once you cross that threshold, you close them halfway. Because the reality is marriage is an incredible leap of faith. You think you know someone. Until you're married and you're living together, and it's a whole different ballgame. That is a huge commitment. It is a commitment to vulnerability. I don't want to be vulnerable. Why? Because I don't want to get hurt. And yet people do it. And I ask people during the wedding ceremony, do, do you desire this person to be your beloved spouse in abundance and in need? In joy and in sorrow, in health and in sickness, as long as God gives you life? Whew. Yeah. You make that commitment not knowing everything. You do not have all of your questions answered with regard to that other person before you get married. And we know that there are some couples, how long, what, what is it on the 28th? Is 26 or 26 on the 28th? 28 years, 17 years. We're pushing 35 years. Uh, I was talking with somebody in the first service. In the last six months, he lost both of his parents. They were married for 62 years. Wow. I mean, that's just mind-boggling. Because marriage today is just, it's, it's all over the map. And you can say, well, there's a lack of commitment. There's a lack of transparency. People don't always go in with their eyes wide open. Sometimes people go in with the intent of fraud. Can you believe that? I've seen it. The vast majority go into it with, with good intentions. But even the best intentions don't always play out. We see that. And we're talking now about a bigger commitment. Although I would argue that the covenant of marriage is the, provides us with an opportunity as close as possible here on earth to experience unconditional and transparent love from another human being, reflective of what we have from God, who, who he knows us inside and out and loves us anyway. In a sense, that's what Jesus is asking them to do. This is a commitment. Are we there yet? Do you recognize who I am as the great I am? And it's like, it's, it's, it's hard. It's hard because life hasn't turned out the way I thought it would. I had plans. I had expectations. I had hopes and dreams. And, and, and I know for some of you that, that those are shattered, shattered. And that anger comes in and you grumble if you're not careful. And, and, and we read that as a result, many of them 
no longer followed Jesus. And yet there were a group that stayed. I think I understand why so many of them walked away. Because there were unanswered questions. There were unmet expectations and blocked goals. There's some fear because of the environment in, in which we are living. And you are asking me to commit everything. I'm just not there yet. And they walk away. Jesus turns to the 12. Do you not want to leave too? And Peter, I love Peter's answer. Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In a sense, what, what Peter is saying is, I don't know it all, but I know enough. And that's really the place where all of us as followers of Jesus need to strive to be. Because we will never know it all, but do we know enough? Do we know enough when we find ourselves in a situation where we are in pain? Because I'm going to tell you that just because you follow Jesus, that doesn't mean you're going to have a pain-free life. It doesn't mean that all of your expectations are going to be met. It doesn't mean that every goal you set, what it means is that Jesus will never leave you. He will never forsake you. So to be able to look at your external circumstances and say, you know what? I did not sign up for this, but I believe with every fiber of my being that God is able to redeem this for his glory and honor. I don't have to have my expectations met to trust that Jesus is the great I am. Yes, I need to be vulnerable, and that vulnerability is going to lead me to be hurt. But I'm willing to be hurt. Nobody knows hurt more than Jesus. He hurt for me. He was betrayed. I will be betrayed. He was disappointed. I will be disappointed. But God will never leave me. He will never forsake me because he is sovereign. He is, he is in control. We will never have all the answers. But he's given us enough to trust him for the ones that we don't have. And some of those answers we will never have this side of eternity. But are we there yet? As, as we move into the seventh chapter of John... Jesus really pushes this with his disciples. Trust. Come to me. Trust that I am the bread of life. That I am the light of the world. That I am the gate to the sheepfold. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. You may never have all of your questions answered, but you will never be alone. I would covet your prayers. 
uh, as Jody and I travel to Scotland uh, tomorrow and for the Max as, uh, as they travel here on, on Wednesday uh, and for our time apart. And I, I look forward to coming back together uh, in August. I'll see, you in, uh, I'll see you in August. But remember the source. The primary reference point of origin, the thing from which something comes, the Word who was in the beginning with God, was God, became flesh and dwelt among us, the great I Am. Are we there yet? Oh, I pray that we are. We're going to get hurt, betrayed, we're going to be offensive, but at the same time, we are going to be light and salt and hope to a world that is desperate right now for something to believe in. As we cling to the source, let us celebrate God's faithfulness in knowing that we are never, ever alone.